you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello again to all of our listeners. Welcome back, everyone. So we are on episode 14 today of the world-famous Common Descent podcast. Yeah, 14 out of... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) 14 out of 10. To be determined. And today we are doing our episode on a subject that is actually near and dear as many paleontology subjects are, but this one particularly is personally close to both me and David. Yeah. This is going to be an episode talking about the gray fossil site, the fossil deposit that we both worked at, the museum that we both uh, were educators and tour guides at, and the one that David went to recently for paleo conference and was able to interview Sean, who was the lab, uh, the head of the lab there that... Uh, whose interview was on the last episode. Yeah, last episode we reported directly from the site. Mm -hmm. And so this episode is kind of a follow-up. It'll it'll be fun because we'll talk about the site as a whole. Yeah. So we'll zoom out a little bit. And this is cool because it's our first ever episode focusing on a particular fossil locality. Yeah, which is very likely going to be first of many because there are some really interesting fossil deposits that, as we were saying in the prep episode, Every site's different. Yup. And so this one has its own unique things that we just happen to know particularly well. Indeed. Yeah. So listeners, if there is a particular fossil locality that you'd like to hear about, as with any subject, let us know. Oh, please do. Uh, Before we get started, a couple of announcements. First, uh, you may have noticed we recently released another digression episode, something a little bit different. Mm Mm-hmm which was our History of the Earth tour through time, all of Earth history in a little over an hour. That was a fun one to make. It was a fun one to make. It seems like people have liked it. But what people may not have realized, if you don't, you know, if you're not following us on Facebook and Twitter every second of the day, we uploaded the full list of events that we used for that time scale. Mm -hmm. So we had a document that we were both looking at that said this event happens... 500 million years ago, and here's the time to mention it on the times on the in the in the episode. That full list of timestamps and events is up on our Patreon page. You mm-hmm. do not have to be a patron to access it. It is open to the public. We've linked it on the Twitter page and on the Facebook page. So if you're interested in seeing that, if you're interested in you know using it yourself or just having a fun you know reading along as you listen to our time scale or whatever, it is uploaded. Find that link on our social media. Uh, it was a lot of fun to make. Yeah, and so that way you can see all the different specific events that we may have mentioned, you may have missed. But it's it was a lot of fun. That one. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Speaking of things that are a lot of fun, coming up in August, toward the end yeah. of August, is the biggest vertebrate paleontology event of the year. Mm-hmm. That is so. Last episode. I reported from a small paleontology conference, the Southeastern Association. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Southeastern Association of Vertebrate Paleontology, which was a conference this year of about 80 people total, which was I th- my well, the biggest year I think that they've had in 10 years. Yeah, way bigger than the one I went to. Yeah. <laughs> Next month, 
And the end of August is the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting. This is the big vert paleo meeting of the year. Yeah, the SVP. SVP. There are routinely around a thousand attendees at SVP from all over mm-hmm. the world. We thought it might be cool to do something special regarding, you know, the big meeting. And we've had a few different ideas of what we might do, uh, you know, even if it's just talking about what the meeting is like. But we thought it would be interesting to let you, the listeners, know that this meeting is coming up. And if there's anything you'd like to see us do or hear us do or you'd like to know about this meeting, let us know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'd love to take your suggestion for what to do to celebrate this, to bring you some inkling of something from this meeting. Basically, the way the conference goes is there are several hundred researchers presenting their research projects. There are a couple of special events. We all go to the nearby museum. It's in Calgary this year. There will be special luncheons. There's an auction. There's also just a thousand professional paleontologists that yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have access to. So, yeah, if there's something you can think of you'd like to hear from SVP, let us know sometime before, you know, mid-August or so, and we'll see what we can do. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where there are so many, so much that we could go over for SVP. It's it's such a huge event, either the specific talks or just what it's like or what all usually gets happens there. But having a having you help us narrow it in will be a lot, lot of help. That's all the announcements I have. With announcements out of the way, the morning announcements are done. Yes. We now move on to your daily news. And I believe you have our first article. Yes, I'm gonna so I'm gonna start with the article that's been making internet waves. Yep. So something 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 T Rex. Oh that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty much. <laughs> so if you follow the Paleo News and even if you don't follow Paleo News, you may have seen that a study has come out this uh, recently. In fact, two studies came out recently suggesting blasphemously that Tyrannosaurus Rex was not very fast. But, I mean, just ever so, like, n- you know, not maybe just slightly faster than a Jeep. Is what they're saying, of course, right? <laughs> slightly, but, a little a little faster than a Jeep. Yeah, open-top Jeep. And <laughs> Basically, for many, many years, paleontologists have come up with a number of different ways to try to estimate the speed of extinct mm-hmm. creatures. Probably the animal that this, this has been done most with is T-Rex. Early on, paleontologists looked at just the anatomy, right? So, And we talked a little bit about this uh, previously, about mm-hmm. how Tyrannosaurus was kind of built for moving. It had yeah. a lot of adaptations that indicate that it was a powerful mover, right? It had powerful leg muscles and it had mm-hmm. specialized leg bones that meant that it was an efficient walker slash runner. But we've also more recently been doing biomechanical studies, which basically is you take all the physics of the moving body and you throw it in a computer and you say, computer, tell me how this thing moved. Most recent, most past biomechanical studies have basically just looked at how could the muscles move it? What was the range of motion in the limbs? And we've gotten ranges of different speed estimates. Yeah. But a new paper just came out by Sellers et al. in the journal Peer J that took an extra step and and said, just how strong are these bones? So they did models of bone stress, right? If this animal is moving in certain ways and moving at certain speeds, 
how much stress is on the bones. This is, you know, this is a six or seven ton animal. There's going to be a lot of weight on there. What their model indicated that eventually you're moving so fast that the force you're putting on these leg bones is too much. It's more mm-hmm. than an animal should be able to withstand based on what we know in general. And what they found is that point happens around a speed of roughly 12 miles an hour, Mm -hmm. which suggests that T-Rex was a fast walker, but not a runner. Yeah. This, now, before we say any more, it's, as is always the case, this is one study. Mm -hmm. There's a lot missing from this study, which isn't to say that it's a bad study, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot more that could be added to the model. There's a lot more that could be done to improve our understanding of the model. A lot of follow-up questions. Yep. There's a lot we still don't know, so mm-hmm. it's it's not a definite. But it is interesting because a lot of studies keep coming back to this answer. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier suggestions had been that T-Rex was, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour. Yeah. Big animal, big legs, big muscles, nice and fast. And that's what Jurassic Park took that idea Right. Mm-hmm. We've clocked the T-Rex at over 35 miles an hour. Exactly. But more and more, the studies are indicating that, no, this was this was a really big animal that would not have really been able to go above not that fast. Yeah, I think... In the grand scheme. The last time I remember it being adjusted, I'm sure it had adjustment, was they had brought it down to like 20 miles an hour. Like it's stepped down. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, there's another study that just came out recently that was... In general, how does the size of an animal affect their speed? Yeah. And they threw out a, a broad estimate for T-Rex that put it in the t- like 10 to 20 miles an hour. Yeah. Max. So, really interesting study. Really interesting new approach, right? They're combining a bunch of different methods of analysis that have not been combined before. So it's a really cool study. And it's really, as um, Tom Holtz said when I asked him about it, uh, Tyrannosaur guy, it's pointing the right direction for where these studies should go. But, of course, this is one of the classic examples of a study that paints a picture of a favorite dinosaur that is different from the picture that a lot of people have in their heads. Mm-hmm. So it's caused all sorts of yelling and, and lamenting on the internet. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. With much wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> exactly. It should be pointed out. And this is when I talked to another Tyrannosaur guy, Dave Hone, about this. His response was, I, I love this. He said, you don't need to be fast to be an effective predator. Mm-hmm. Do you realize how many predatory snails there are? <laughs> yes. Which is, and, and that's really the point, is that there's a lot that goes into hunting behavior. Mm-hmm. And the general consensus among the paleontologists I've heard from is that the maximum speed of this animal doesn't really tell us much about its hunting behavior mm-hmm. because speed is one of many, many factors. Well, yeah, and it, it, the bigger thing that really plays into it is you only need to be a fast predator if your prey is fast. Yes. If you're, if the thing you're hunting is just a little slower than you, you are fast. Absolutely. Or if you're an ambush predator, mm-hmm. right? Crocodiles don't run fast. Nope. That was my other first thought was like a big, big, you know, a lot of big crocs stop standing up all the way because <laughs> they're <laughs> yep. too fat to do that on land really comfortably. But if if you're surprising your prey, which has been suggested for T-Rex a number of times, mm-hmm. that they were ambushing from tree lines and or 
you know, wading along paths to ambush. Pre- you don't need to run fast. You just need to be able to jump once really good. It's also worth pointing out, uh, not going into too much detail, but there is the, the, the point that at younger ages and smaller sizes, mm-hmm. tyrannosaurs may have been making more full use of all those wonderful running adaptations. Mm-hmm. So they may have been quite fast and uh, and efficient at running when they were smaller. Yeah. Or even their smaller ancestors from whom they inherited those features. Yes. So we're, we're starting to get an idea of how these animals moved. Uh, and every bit of information paints a slightly bigger picture. Indeed it does. Very cool. So... Yeah. Not not quite on the same note of T-Rex. Who wants to talk about early mammals? Early mammals? I don't. What? Yeah. Moving no, on. I'm, I apologize I'm... to everyone for for the next five minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> so my second news piece. <laughs> <laughs> so a recent news article came out about the acquiring of warm-bloodedness in mammal ancestors. Ooh. Which is kind of a big event. Sure is. So warm-blooded, as many of you know, as opposed to cold-blooded, which reptiles are, is the endothermic, where you are controlling your body temperature by your own means and you're not using the sun. Mm-hmm. And a paper, paper on eLife by Kevin Ray et al. has looked at a number of fossils of early mammals and other uh, uh, animals during that time to try to determine at what point their thermoregulation changed. Yeah. And they found that it actually happened earlier than they had initially thought, but they also used a really cool technique to do it. What they ended up finding was that the Cynodontia, which are early mammal ancestors, Mm -hmm. acquired their warm-bloodedness somewhere around the late Permian period. Right. Right before the Triassic. So right before the mass extinction that separated those and the before the beginning of the age of reptiles. This is ranging, but the Permian range is between 259 to 252 million years ago. So in there. Yep. This, like it once again, puts it back older, but also suggests that that change to being warm-blooded might have been what allowed them to survive that mass extinction. Yeah, they do suggest that. More which on that is, in a second. Yeah, which is, is a big suggestion, but it's a cool thing to point out that it happened beforehand. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't something they acquired later on after the environmental changes. Now, the way they did this was interesting because it's usually hard to determine cold or warm-bloodedness, you know, endothermic or exothermic, because a lot of the features don't fossilize, like fur or things yeah. like that. A lot of them can actually be shared by animals who may not necessarily be yeah. warm-blooded. <laughs> they can so be misleading. It can be misleading, and uh, this is I found this, they don't all show up at the same time. Like, they pop oh, yeah. up in different lineages at different times, and then eventually they have them and they become warm-blooded. Well, that's, as, as with anything, the difference between, quote, cold-blooded and, quote, warm-blooded is not a hard line in yeah. the spectrum. You didn't, they didn't wake up one day and going, oh, I'm warm. Are you warm? I'm. This is... <laughs> <laughs> we should go find some shade. Yeah, I, I don't like standing out in the sun as much as, <laughs> as we did. <laughs> so they did a uh, chemical study in the minerals of over 100 fossils. Like It was a pretty yeah. wide study. They looked at the early mammal ancestors and a number of other animals that all coexisted during the same time 
So they knew they were looking at similar environmental and temperatures mm -hmm. for those fossils. And what they did is it was an oxygen study. So we've talked about isotopes bunches and bunches of times. These yeah. are the versions of uh, atoms that have a you know wrong number of neutrons in their body. Oxygen has two of those, oxygen 16 and oxygen 18, that they were looking at here. And those build up in bones and materials at a different ratio depending on, in a big part, the body temperature. Yes. So by looking at that ratio, they can roughly determine the temperatures of the bodies of those animals. And by doing that, they were able to see at what point did a lineage go from the fluctuating cold-blooded bodies to a stable warm-blooded body. Which is a really cool way of getting at this question. Which it, it reminded me very much of uh, the egg study, the news one we talked about a while yep. back, where they were looking at how it goes into the bones in the eggshell. Yeah, is this ratio very similar concept of accumulation, and so they were able to find where that point was. Another really cool point is so there's the cynodonts and there's the dicynodonts. Mm -hmm. You know, both early ancestors, but they both developed warm-bloodedness separately because the ancestors of both of those were cold-blooded for a time. Yelp. <laughs> which is, <laughs> you would think that warm-bloodedness, which all mammals had today, would have been some long, like, no, it happened at one point and then spread out. And like, no, two, two different groups found it. Set, they both found it using the same traits and using, yeah. you know, for the same reactions, but different times and separately, which is really cool. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was really striking is that they looked at a bunch of these animals from the Permian period and a bunch of these animals from the Triassic and found that in those two groups, the the members of those groups before the boundary were cold-blooded and the members of those groups after the boundary were warm-blooded. Mm -hmm. So they both made the change at a time where other things were not making that change. Exactly. That's now, really cool. as I mentioned earlier, they have drawn the conclusion or at least said that maybe one of the connections to this is the fact that there's a mass extinction there mm -hmm. that in parts was caused by and had the result you know after results of big climatic changes yes and that this new warm-blooded feature may have been the key to survival for these early mammalian groups indeed now when i hear that suggestion my my brain immediately says yeah, but there were like, this This is the extinction that ushered in the age of reptiles. Mm -hmm. So clearly being warm-blooded was not yes. key to surviving. It might be more accurate, and that's a slightly pretentious way of saying this in the face of an impressive study that a bunch of scientists did. <laughs> but it may be a better way to think of it is that the extinction selected for mm -hmm. that, that the a lot of the ancient members of these groups that didn't have those endothermic traits suffered greater. Yes. And so this may have been what led to the success of warm-blooded mammals versus cold-blooded. And so this may have been one of the first steps on the way to us eventually being able to rise up. Rise up. Rise up. Which is... We finally did it. <laughs> 14 episodes. If you had asked me episode one how long it would take for us to finally make a Hamilton reference in the <laughs> podcast, I would have bet way earlier than this. Yep. 
<laughs> See, what we've triggered now is any of the people who have backgrounds in theater are now just singing. That's uh, it, yep. <laughs> Enjoy. And then they've turned off the podcast and yep. they just went, picked up the Hamilton soundtrack. Yep, it's, it's over. They're never going to make it past that point. <laughs> um, That's it. <laughs> So that was a that was a cool one. That was a fun one. I I thought that was a neat study. Very cool stuff. But let's talk about dinosaurs again. We're trying to balance it out. We're gonna do a dinosaur article, do something else. We'll do a dinosaur article, (laughs) do something else. (laughs) We try not to do dinosaurs all the time because it's you could. We could definitely do dinosaurs every week. But we're trying not to perpetuate (laughs) the stereotype that paleontologists only ever talk about dinosaurs. Indeed. Though it may be true a lot of the time, <laughs> we are not going to live this stereotype. We are not going to talk about dinosaurs all the time. That being said, let's talk about dinosaurs. So another study that came out recently, this came out a little while ago, actually, but it's been reported on recently in a uh, context that, that I thought was interesting. Bertozo et al. in the journal Pier J came out with a study on a dinosaur named Oranosaurus. Oranosaurus is not a super popular dinosaur. Uh, it is an herbivorous dinosaur. It's like a lot like Iguanodon. It's one of the duckbill-style dinosaurs. Yeah. Notable for having a giant sail on its back. Not unlike Spinosaurus. Yeah. This is an interesting feature, and the, the, the question of features like these sails has always been, you know, this big question of what are they for, even? It comes up with Stegosaurus's spines, and it comes up with the frills on Ceratopsians, and there's a lot of these features in dinosaurs that we just don't have a good answer yet for what what they were being used for entirely. Well, Oranosaurus is known uh, largely from two really nice skeletons found in Niger, but one of them has been sitting in a museum on display in Venice since the 70s and has not really gotten a good study mm-hmm. until now. This paper took a really close look at this dinosaur, published the first good description of this skeleton. They came up with all sorts of cool things that they found, but specifically they came up with some evidence toward answering what that sale might have been for. Oh, interesting. It has been suggested that the sales were for thermal regulation, Mm -hmm. you know, capturing heat or releasing heat as the body needed it. Yep. But they did not find the evidence of lot. Usually, when you have a feature like that, you see lots and lots of blood vessel yes. activity, and they didn't really see that. It's also been suggested that those spines that maybe they weren't a sail, maybe those tall spines sticking off of the the backbone instead of holding a sail were holding a hump. There's like, like a, a big big fatty hump, like a bison. Yeah, exactly. But they didn't find signs of the muscle attachment that you'd expect to see in a big hump. Hmm. What they did do is cut through the bones and examine the growth history of the dinosaur. By doing that, so dinos- you know, you cut through dinosaur bones, you can find at least partial evidence of their growth history. You can get yeah. an idea of how old they are. This dinosaur appears to have been about seven years old when it died. Not fully grown just yet, but the growth signatures in its spines, the sail spines, were not seven years old. Mm-hmm. In fact, they differed between different parts of the spines. Altogether, what this suggests is that the spines didn't fully start developing until the, the, the animal was about three years old. Interesting. Now, if it was a hump, or if it was for keeping warm, 
or if it had some sort of survival function, you wouldn't expect it to be the kind of thing that it, you know, what are you doing for three years without it? Exactly. But there is an entire class of features that regularly does this, and those are sexual features. Puberty. Puberty, yes, exactly. Three years old, maybe. This dinosaur went through some changes. (laughs) (laughs) You woke up one day. (laughs) You're going to notice you're growing sales in places you didn't have sales before. (laughs) And, you know, this has also been suggested for a lot of things like the crests on certain dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. uh, things like that. This is pretty decent evidence. Again, not definite, but decent evidence that this was a late developing feature possibly because it was a sexual display feature mm-hmm. right they were showing off they were attracting mates with this yeah well and it's it's a really good point to make because and we have trouble with this with living taxon it is often really hard to differentiate between a display feature and a functional feature mm-hmm. especially cuz that line isn't always clear there's some animals that have a body part they use for a tool one time and then will use to attract mates another time Yes, exactly. Like a rhino horn or something. Yeah. But then there's other ones that have these really weird features that are just for sexual display, and some have really weird features, and you're like, well, there's no way you're using that. for." St-. And then, nope, nope. <laughs> it's how you catch bugs, evidently. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, so it can be tough to tell. It's really hard to, dis- dis- to discern function of body parts just by looking at them. It's It would be like giving someone a mechanics tool and just a random tool from the garage and going, what does it do? Yes. <laughs> if you're not a mechanic, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, and we are not an Oranosaurus. Yeah. So yeah, so some potential indications of changes in the life of the dinosaur. I like those because they also now give us a, give us some potential insights into what that animal's behavior in life was like. Because if they have that for display, they may have also been displaying it, you know. Yeah, shaking it around. Yeah. I've seen reconstructions of some dinosaurs that suggest, and this is complete conjecture, Yeah, but that they may have been able to change the colors of them somehow. Yeah, flushing them with blood and stuff. Flushing them with blood, stuff like that. Which I've heard be... that with uh, stegosaur plates. Yeah, I've seen Lots that. of people suggesting that part of the reason they were displayed that way is that they could flash them like signs by you know pumping blood into them. Indeed. Now... I am taking this completely out of the realm of dinosaurs, and we're going to talk about early peoples. That's even worse than your last news. Right? And this isn't even a paleontology article. This is an archaeology episode. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We're not even qualified. you got to get your own podcast for that. I know, right? I'm going off the beaten trail. (laughs) I'm shanghaiing this. So, there was a recent report about a study published in Nature by Chris Clarkson at all, of a study of an archaeological site in northern Australia, due to evidence and dating of certain artifacts there, they've pushed the date of humans' earliest arrival in Australia back to about 65,000 years ago, which puts it 10,000 years earlier than the previous oldest date. Interesting. Now this is you know, we, we have things adjusting dates all the time, and so that's cool in and of itself. But the reason this one caught my eye, mm-hmm. and I, I this is one thing that just continually comes up in our, in our podcast, and I kind of like keeping the trend, is this ends up giving us some information on the megafaunal extinction that so famously happened there. Yeah. The archaeological site, and I I have no idea how to say the name because it's an it's a Aboriginal name. Oh, man. I got to bring it up. 
Najed. It's like Najed Bebe. Najed Bebe. I'm going to pull it up and I'm going to see if I can do it. I am an expert pronouncer. Matt. Oh, boy. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, you know uh, what? Never mind. What were you Continue. saying, Will? <laughs> as, as you were. So this this site is a rock insert, shelter. Insert site name here. <laughs> we just need to find someone. <laughs> if you're an Australian, please let. Yeah, let please. Know. Yeah, you you record yourself saying it. <laughs> Send it to us. We'll put a link in the blog post. <laughs> so this is in the Northern Territory of Australia, and it's it's a site that's been you know being dug at for years and years. They found over ten thousand artifacts and. Uh, Animal and plant remains there. Cool. Tons of cool stuff. They mentioned some of the more notable artifacts that have been found there. Some ochre crayons and like other pigments like that. What's believed to be the world's oldest edge ground hatchets. That's cool. Yeah. And then I then said they were grounding seeds and processing plants there. So, I mean, cool stuff for fairly early humans. Yeah. Early by modern standards. Yes. This is all cool and everything, but the reason this date is important is because the debate that had been going on with the megafaunal extinction, as we've mentioned before, is whether or not the arrival of humans caused the extinction of many large animals or climate change Mm -hmm. caused it, or which was the main cause. And if this date is accurate, they're making the argument that this places humans' first arrival way too early to... Then suddenly later on, like yeah. they would have already meshed into the environment by the time the extinction happened. So interesting. They, there has to be some other factor that caused the extinction than just the presence of people because they've already been there for a while. Yeah, which is very interesting. Now the way they did this was a couple of dating. They radiocarbon dated some of the layers, but that actually does not go back old enough to get them the date. Mm-hmm. The way they got the sixty-five was through. Optical stimulated luminescence. Yeah. Which is one, I think we've mentioned this before, uh, where you're looking at the way light affects things like sand grains can be determined, and you can see when was it last exposed to sunlight. Yes, before it was buried. Mm -hmm. And this can go back like a hundred thousand years, so it it was well within that range. Cool. So yeah, pretty interesting. I'm always interested whenever we get a... Even just a new article, whether or not it's a necessarily new piece of information or if it's just a, a re-studied you know, piece of the puzzle, I'm always interested when more of this discussion gets brought up because it's just it's a, one of our big mysteries. Oh, yeah, we're going to have to do the uh, that megafaunal extinction episode. Yes. Can't be too far down the line. Mm-mm. You can make it earlier, dear listeners, by letting us know if you want to hear it. Call in with the number you now <laughs> see at the bottom of your screen. With that, I believe we've wrapped up. Our new section. And now our feature presentation. Bum, 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 bum. We need a big opening music. We're going to get sued. Spotlights. I know, right? I was yeah. I was like, I was trying to be like, <laughs> gonna... drum noises, you know what I'm saying, but not really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, today's episode, we are talking about the gray fossil site. Our favorite fossil site. Yeah. So, once again, this is the fossil site where me and David both worked for a time it was this is actually where we first met and started hanging out this is true and it's a very cool fossil site for a number of reasons it's got a unique selection of animals it's got a 
it's a very cool deposit in and of itself because it's how everything's being preserved there. But we'll start by giving a little intro into the site itself and then going into some more of the details about how it was formed and go into some details of the really cool animals that are there. Indeed. So quick background, Grayfoss site, as the name suggests, is actually in Gray, Tennessee. This is in East Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And a, a stone's throw from Virginia and also from North Carolina. Yeah, it's it's a really small little town, and the site was discovered in 2000 when a road crew was bringing a, a highway ex- expansion through, cutting through a hill. So they were leveling off this hill to get rid of what would be a curve in the road. Yeah. And while they were taking the top off, they had already gone through like 20 feet or so of the hill. Yeah. They started hitting this really dark clay deposit. Really, really dense. Very, it's almost black when it's wet. And already that was weird, but then they started hitting bone pieces. And one of the big first things they hit and one of the first major things that was uncovered was actually a piece of one of the elephants, the mastodons. Yeah, the animal that now, 17 years later, we realize mm-hmm. is a mastodon. Yep. They were also finding tapir oh, yeah. and, and turtles back then as well. And I mean, they were tumbling, because it's a very rich fossil site, so when they were you know, going through with boulders, they were tumbling just tons of fossil pieces. Uh, a big yep. chunk of alligator skull was one of those early things churned up out of one of the hillsides. Yeah, and you can imagine being a construction worker in Tennessee to start coming across bones of elephants and alligators Mm -hmm. and tapirs is quite a surprise. And very luckily for us, the road work was soon halted and redirected. Yes. And the site was protected by request of the, uh, at that time, Governor Don Sunquist. Yes, big thanks to Don Sunquist. Did I tell you I met him? Yes, you did, and that's... Super cool, because I only ever knew him as the name on the side of the building. Yeah, every we would walk past his name every day when mm-hmm. we were in the museum, and, and we never met him. I got to meet him at SCAVP. It was pretty cool. It's pretty neat. <laughs> that was fun. He insisted on taking everybody's hand. Yeah. Very cool. And political. so he, he basically saved the site by doing that, and the road now curves around that area. Eventually, um, I think it was 2007, the yep. museum was built that's there. And it's run by the, you know, the staff of it are through East Tennessee State University, where we both got our master's. Yeah. And recently they've started working with it in conjunction with the Hands-On Museum there, which is a, a local children's museum that started taking over parts of the, like, day-to-day stuff. Yeah. It's interesting that the process of putting this whole thing together has a, has a number of points that are not common. Mm-hmm. The first one being that the construction stopped. Yes, that's a that doesn't really always happen. Notable in, in fact, event. Yeah, I mean, I usually there's a lot of the times what ends up happening is that it's reported, which is supposed yeah. to be. I mean, theoretically, there are fossil discoveries that are just not reported. Yes, but you know, construction crews do what they're supposed to do. They report it, but a lot of the time, what happens is the company will say call up the university, hey, identify these bones, what is it? And the paleontologist says, this is something pretty cool. And then whoever's in charge says, all right, you got two months. It's paused, not stopped. Get what you can. What happened here was that the Department of Transportation moved the road. Yeah. uh, And it worked out very well. Yeah, it was was, enough people 
there during that initial discovery were able to realize that something they had they had stumbled upon something pretty notable and big. Yeah, and yeah, and that's the other thing is it's it's big, it's got Huge. some really rare stuff. And now the museum sits right, literally on the fossil mm-hmm. site right off the highway, yep. which is a much more convenient digging location than most fossil sites are. It's it's uh, quite the luxury to be able to go dig up fossils and then walk inside and use a toilet. Yes, in the <laughs> air conditioning and, and take a drink from the water fountain. Which not all people who go on fossil <laughs> expeditions get to do. <laughs> this is very true. And so the site, just to give you an idea of the the deposit, since we were talking about its size really quick, it is really big. On the surface, we typically would uh, say it's about four acres. Now, the exact Mm -hmm. extents are are blurred. There may be little pockets that stretch out, you know, further than we initially know because it's not a uniform shape. In general, the site is a cone. It's mm-hmm. circular-ish on the surface because it's a sinkhole. Yes, and it, we'll, we'll get into all of that in, a, in just a second on what how it was formed and everything. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. wide on the surface and at its deepest point, since it is a a sinkhole deposit, it goes down almost forty meters. For our <laughs> American listeners, that's well over a hundred feet. Well over, and it, it's so it's nope. huge. When we were there, and I'm sure it has not bumped up much past that. With the digging that had happened since 2000, this mm-hmm. was just a few years ago when we were actively digging there, they had estimated that we had uncovered may- about 1%. Yeah, if that. If that. So and that's not... A lot of fossil sites, you're digging like two weeks out of the year. Mm-hmm. This site, they're digging several months out of the year. Yes. It's just, it's so rich and it's so big and there's so much in there. And and the part of the reason we've dug so little is we find a lot while we dig. So we could be here a long, long time. Absolutely. We should mention real quick what some of these things we're finding Absolutely. Are. We'll go so, into more detail with the animals later, but absolutely. to tease people. But to give you an idea, so the age range of these animals that we're finding are late Miocene, early Pliocene, roughly 7 to 4.7 million years old. Yeah. And we actually have that date range because of two of our animals. Indeed. So getting into biostratigraphy, back from our geological time episode, we yeah. have a rhino, Teleoceros. Yes, the barrel-chested rhino. It's a rhino shaped like a hippo. It's really, and they're so, they, they've got tusks in their mouth. It's yes, very different from what you expect of the rhinos nowadays. And we have a short-faced bear. Now, many of you probably recognize short-faced bears as being these huge, you know, massive monsters that lived out in the Midwest of North America. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, Arctotus and these these bears that could have almost looked eye to eye with some elephants. This was not that. This was a much smaller bear. Yeah, much earlier it, too. Much earlier, but it was a short-faced bear, Plinarctos, and their ages overlapped almost two and a half million years to give us that age range. Yeah, so we know we're somewhere in that mm-hmm. seven to five, seven to four point five million years. So. We have some, you know, cool uses for the animals already, but a lot of the animals we find here are different because this is one of the only sites of this age range in this area of the U.S. Yeah. The, the closest fossil sites of this age, there are a few in Florida, mm-hmm. and there's one in Indiana, Yeah, I believe, is that the, sounds the Pipe right. Creek. Mm-hmm. So this is the 
for many, 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 many miles in any direction. This is it. This is our only window into this time period. So we get some weird animals that haven't been seen, you know, or haven't been seen for this area elsewhere. The probably the most famous that if you were to look up things, there's kind of two that really stand out is our red pandas and our tapirs. Yes, both again in Tennessee. Yeah, these are <laughs> these were in Tennessee. Neither of which are there now. Just in case you're wondering. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We have a, a confirmed new species of red panda that would have been a yeah. bit bigger than the ones you see today. Uh, yeah, it was bigger, less arboreal, seemingly, mm-hmm. and more of a meat eater. So <laughs> a, a lot of comparisons have been drawn. Probably more acting like a, a raccoon or or the aquati would probably also be a really good yeah, parallel. Yeah. An omnivorous, happy in trees, but not quite... Probably as much as the modern red panda. Exactly. So they they we have that, and then our our tapir. And for any of you who don't know tapirs, uh, again these are uh, now South American, but they're mm-hmm. little cousins of horses and rhinos that have a teeny tiny little stubby trunk. Yep. Up at front, and they look like the way I always described it to the kids uh, was they look like a pig that got its nose stuck in a door. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, actually, that's a really good description. Yeah, like, they look and they function very much like pigs. They're living in the forest, they're eating plants, and they have this little proboscis that they can manipulate their food with. They like to swim, you know, so they're they're neat little animals. Ours were not as big as the biggest ones today, but medium size. I I can't quite think of what the dimensions to give, right, just a few feet tall. Yeah, they're the size of a child. Yeah. They're also everywhere. Everywhere. And you cannot stop finding tapirs on this site. But when we were there, even a few years ago, we had already had more than 100 individual mm-hmm. tapir specimens. It's it's one of those things where if you bump into bone there and it's bigger than your thumb, most likely you're looking at tapir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really crazy. There, there's a whole list of things. It was a pond, so we have a lot of aquatic things and a lot of stuff like that yeah turtles uh, we mentioned the gator there are yeah. fish bones there's frogs and salamanders so you were looking at a very lush watering hole is what this yeah. environment was it was a sinkhole that collapsed and they're still common today right sinkholes yeah, are yeah, still tennessee common in this area. is still you know that area of tennessee is still notorious for sinkholes and yeah. gulfing places and it became a cenote like down in Mexico, in South America, mm-hmm. where you have a sinkhole that has filled in with water. Yes. Uh, and that was always a thing that would catch people off guard when we talked about it at the museum, is we'd say, oh, it was a sinkhole, and their mind would immediately say, oh, so the animals fell in and died. Yes, it's not, you think of it as an event. Right. But this was a lake, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see in the sediment the layers laid down seasonally. In this lake, this was here mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. Absolutely, animals were living here and dying here. This was a, a an established environment, and indeed, it's cool because being a sinkhole affects how everything's preserved there. So this was uh, the rock in that area of Tennessee, and a lot of areas like here in Florida is very heavily limestone, and that's yep. common for sinkholes because limestone dissolves in rainwater. And creates cavities and good stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So this is a big limestone bowl that was created after that sinkhole event, filled with water, 
and became a and it was a forested area so it was this nice little pool of water within a fairly densely forested area as far as we can see so you just be walking through the woods and suddenly perfect pool yeah and with that because it's a very deep the water's very still it's undisturbed so things toward the bottom don't get churned up uh, mm-hmm. and you also have an anaerobic environment a low oxygen environment at the bottom which is yep. Ideal for fossil preservation. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Hence the dark color and that, that very organic clay. Yeah, so this is a very carbon-rich clay. Uh, had this area had more time and had been under more pressure, we probably would have gotten some coal formed yeah, here. Yeah, if we had left it there for, you know, another hundred million years, mm-hmm. it could have been maybe a little coal deposit. Yeah, but instead we have these beautiful layers of dark clay with brilliantly preserved fossils, both animal fossils, but lots of plant fossil too that's not petrified or impressioned. We would actually get flattened seeds and wood that yeah. you could still peel apart and see the wood grain and it would still crumble. You know, think of like very damp wood yeah. that's you know, flattened and tough. And so it was our fossils were very interesting because they were still mostly calcium. They were still mostly wood that's just been locked away in this time capsule. Yeah, the preservation of the the, the fossils is really interesting, especially with the bones, because they're still mostly bone, like you mm-hmm. said. They're mineralized just enough to stain them the exact same color as the clay. They've got this chocolatey brown look. It's really, really cool. It's really distinctive. It's also a huge pain when you're digging through the clay. <laughs> it means you have to really keep an eye out because yep. you could very well overlook one because it looks just like a clump of clay. Yep. And this is why we shape. this is why we water screen at that site yes. because our bones are so well preserved. They're the same color, and we get lots of really tiny stuff, like so much small material that oh, yeah. there's no way you would catch it all by digging. So we wash the clay away. And sift it through screens to get that really little, you yeah. Know, if you material, and we should have some pictures to share on the blog post. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When we're digging, you you know, people are digging with these little garden trowels, very slowly through these layers of clay to be sure they don't miss anything, they don't break anything by going too fast. Because there's so much in there that if you took, a, if you stuck a shovel in the ground and pulled up a big clump of clay, you will have fossils in it. Yes. And you'll probably break a bunch of them mm-hmm. by doing it that way. And that's something to be noted about this site is that we aren't digging with pickaxes and shovels and oh yeah, you know equipment that you might. We are digging with little hand garden trowels, to yeah. where in one day of digging you might go down. If it's a, if you're not in a fossil heavy area, you might go down part of a foot. Oh yeah, you're that, yeah. It's it's slow going. That would be a fast day. <laughs> but everybody's sitting next to a bucket. Mm-hmm. And all the clay they dig up goes into a bucket. They pull, you know, they they pick up the bones that they notice. We get them out. If it's big, we wrap it in a in plaster and take it inside. But all that clay in the bucket gets poured on a screen and washed through to mm-hmm. get out the tiny things. Like like I mean, you know, I said before, frogs and salamanders. Absolutely. Uh, this is the site where Steve and I named that new snake species that we mentioned a few episodes ago. And indeed, well, oh, a lot of what we know about the surrounding plant life comes from pollen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fossilized pollen grains that you only get from screening very, very fine screens Absolutely. to get the tiny, tiniest things in there. It's really cool. And that's that's probably my favorite thing about this site. And I look forward to 
seeing how it develops into the future because you know there are other famous sites like this like the La Brea Tar Pits is another one where you have mm-hmm. such a cre- you know crazy preservation but very much like that here we have pollen to seeds to insects to yep. fish and frogs all the way up to saber-tooth cat bears rhinos elephant yeah so we have a a really good picture of the entire food chain and environment so we yeah. have a really good idea of what it was like while these animals were living here yeah it's 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 rare that you get such a complete picture mm-hmm. in a fossil site but yeah. this things have come together both geologically and you like politically yes to to make this a really really well-preserved and well-documented site. And it's still, I mean, they're digging, well, not right this minute, but if you are listening to this episode and it's not cold out mm-hmm. and it's dur- and the sun's up, they're digging in this, in this yeah. site right now. Yeah. They are. They, they try to get in as much as they can. Cause it's one of those things where with the amount of stuff we dig up to be screened and the amount of stuff we find while digging and the size of the site is it's not so much that we're behind on schedule, but the more we can get done, <laughs> the quicker, because the the better, because there's so much to go through. Oh yeah, Sean told me that they just recently finally managed to break even with mm-hmm. s- screening and picking and digging. Yeah. So they're going through the tiny stuff in the in the screen sediment. As quick as they are digging up sediment now. Yeah. For the first time in, in like the 15 years that they've been digging here. It's really intense. Yeah. So one thing to mention since, uh, before we start just talking about the animals. On the Nova site, since you mentioned that a lot of people think that it, you know, think of sinkholes as being like everything fell in and that's why we have <laughs> so many animals. Uh, we do have some evidence that stuff like that was going on while the pond was there. That there were likely rock yeah. slides because we have big limestone boulders in the middle of the deposit where it would have been all water. So it likely was, we, some people have uh, reconstructed the landscape as having a cliff face or something similar on one side nearby. Yeah. And that it was, would every now and then drop these stones into the water. And these are big limestone boulders. We have to actually use micro explosives to fracture them and then remove them. Yes. Which is cool. It is there, there, the, the, the the chat around the site these days is wondering if certain of these animals mm-hmm. were deposited during a collapse event that, that yeah. they were standing on the wall next to the pond and it collapsed and some of them fell in obviously this isn't how you were getting your alligator fossils and your frogs and salamanders they were living there it was the rock climbing alligator yeah exactly <laughs> well it's an interesting point because you know, we often think about fossil sites, and we don't often think about that different fossils in a fossil site may have been fossilized in different ways. Mm-hmm. That this one just happened to die there, this one got eaten and then mm-hmm. preserved there, this one fell in, and this, again, is a snapshot, several snapshots over the life of this environment. Mm-hmm. So you could have different fossil creatures that had different stories in terms of how they ended up here in the site. Yeah, you can have natural deaths and accidents both yep. being preserved, which is cool. It means it's hard to sometimes tell apart, you know, did this 
animal just slip in? Did it die and roll in? You know, yeah. I mean, because that could be happening all over. An old elephant comes here to a watering hole where it can rest and then just dies in the water. Or maybe, yeah. you know, since we, you know, we think with our rhinos and our elephants, they were a family group because we have multiple ages. Yeah. You know? So that's part of the reason there's a thought of maybe something happened that killed them all at once because they're all next to each other and we have adults and babies preserved. Yes. For the rhinos, so, at least we do. Yeah. And I think we have uh, a younger mastodon, but not. Chris told me that the mastodons are all about the same age. Oh, okay. See, I, I, earlier on, I. If had, I, remember I remember correctly, I don't know yeah. where that is now. All right, cool. But this site has some really cool features like that. And getting into some of the ones that I'm sure everyone wants to hear about with the animals, we have a like too many for me to actually go through. They just released a recent update to the faunal and flora list. Yeah. And I counted all the species on the animal list and it was 105. <laughs> that's a lot of species <laughs> at once. That's site. a lot. And I didn't count all the plants, but it's the same length. The PDF is the same amount of pages, so we're looking at at least 100 <laughs> plants as well. Yup. And like we said, this ranges from insects to rodents to fish to birds, all the way up to all the large animals. And it's it's an amazing selection with some notable oddities. As we already mentioned the panda, but yeah. a lot of our animals and plants actually have connections to Asia. Indeed. Yeah, some of them are things you'd expect. Mm -hmm. Like, the salamanders are pretty familiar, the yeah. snakes are pretty familiar, the alligator I mean, is not too, too far away from where you'd see well, an alligator yeah, today. They've they've had odd spiting, you know, spottings of alligators in Tennessee before. It's like, oh, there's this one that made it way too far north in a lake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it, but a red panda, yeah, that's way different from their distribution mm -hmm. today. Uh, another one of the new species. So before we go into this a little bit, we there we have a number of new species at this site, but it should be noted that it's very likely a either majority or a vast amount of the animals discovered there will end up being new species or something something different because every time we look at one, they usually seem to be a little bit different than what we're used to seeing. Oh yeah, the more we investigate, I mean. We had the one new snake species. Mm -hmm. The mastodon is not recognizable mm -hmm. as something we already know. The panda is a new species. The uh, there's and there's a lot of the other animals that are not officially published yeah. as new species. The mastodon's not either, but there are a lot of animals at the site that the researchers who have studied them are going, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I haven't named it yet. Yeah, but when this is published, it will be a new species. Uh, yeah, I don't know what else it would be. Yeah, and that's what the snake was like. Where we looked at the snake and went, uh, well, we've looked at lots of snakes and none of them yep. look like this. And of course, you know, the question that kind of comes up is what's special about this site that made it have so many new species? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, like we said before, this is the only site of its age yes. anywhere near here. So it's kind of expected that we're seeing things you don't see at other fossil sites. Exactly. This is the first time we're getting a glimpse in this area of the map. From Indeed. this time. But the Asia connection, there's another, you know, there's a few that make this connection very well. A number of our plants do, but we have yeah. an, another confirmed, you know, new species for the site, which is a Eurasian badger. Yes, it's such a cool one because today there are badgers in Europe and Asia 
and badgers in North America, mm-hmm. but the one at this site is a Eurasian-style badger. Which is really cool. Yeah. And so we have all these animals that have connections over there. Uh, even the alligator, though still here today, the only other alligator species on the planet is a Chinese one. Yes. So we still have that Asia connection even with that animal. And so it, it really supports the you know the Asian land bridge that allowed animals to travel over and spread across. And that connection has been a big discussion piece regarding this site because there are a few different ways you get linkages like that in your, you know, that you can have pandas in Tennessee as well as across Asia, which is where most of their fossil record is, mm-hmm. and Europe as well. Either they've been there for a very, very long time, right, since way, way back where there were ancient exactly. continental connections and they just never disappeared, or there were more recent connections between the continents that were allowing animals to have ranges that extended over both of them. And in this case, we're not quite sure. We're not sure if these are how long, for example, pandas were in mm-hmm. North America before this. We're not sure where the connection may have been. It may have been the classic, you know, Alaska to Russia yes. connection. And there is there are panda fossils in Washington. There's a, mm-hmm. a tooth, I believe. Right, right. But it could also there could also have been a North Atlantic connection of some kind, either at this time or shortly before this time. So yeah, it's there are connections between our faunas and our floras, like you said. Mm-hmm. There's Chinese plants that we're seeing at this site that the communities we had here are not entirely what we think of as North American today. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And a, another thing on that note of being different than what you'd expect is being or most most likely being a Miocene aged site. Mm-hmm. One of the animals that is most common among Miocene fossil sites are horses. Yes. Like that's kind of what you think of if you're a person who studies any early horses are one of those things that you just expect to find at Miocene sites. Mm-hmm. And we don't <laughs> we have <laughs> we we have two very little in the way of horses. And two teeth. I yep. actually was one of the people to find one of those teeth. <laughs> yep. I, I, I love to brag that I found 25% of our horse material. <laughs> <laughs> very true. And and that's really odd. Uh, it may be that we're in the wrong area. It may be that the tapirs pushed out You know the jobs yeah. that the horses might have had. I mean, it... We're not sure why we don't have horses, but it is something that's unique compared to other sites of this age. Yeah, and we said that this is a somewhat unique in that it's at least somewhat denser forest, Mm -hmm. whereas this was a time where a lot of North America was seeing more open environments and grasslands and stuff. And this being an ancient, this was one. This is one of your uh, ancient three-toed horses. Yeah, it would have been about the same size as the the tapirs, just a few feet tall. Not yeah, not very big. Uh, but maybe they were at home in the grasslands, or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, the rhino and mastodon and tapir presence mm-hmm. was too much for them, and they just didn't have enough, you know, for some reason, we're not getting them. I wonder if they had the, um, you know, home ranges that, like, deer have, you know, deer are specialists for edge of forest environments, where they that's dart true. into the trees to hide, come out into the fields to feed. You know, that's why Bambi's mother, you know. Was on the edge. Yeah, that's why she went 
out into the... I mean, so that's... You have to blame their biology for that scene in that movie, people. That's why tapirs aren't in Disney movies. Exactly. No, it wouldn't be sad. They'd be like, no, I'm not going out there. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be the end of the movie. There we go. All right. They lived happily ever after. (laughs) The horse is another interesting case because we talked about the Asia connection. And, you know, I'm always hesitant when we talk about that to make it sound like it's such an unusual thing. Mm -hmm. Horses evolved in North America. Yes. Right. They were there first, and then they spread to other continents later, and then they later disappeared in North America. So there's a lot of complex appearance and dispersal Mm -hmm. and disappearance that that brings animals to different – and plants to different parts of the world. The horses are always a fun one because we have wild horses here now, but they were brought back by – uh, the Spaniards. People. Yeah. 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 Horses that, evolved in North America, dispersed elsewhere, went extinct in North America, and then rode boats back. <laughs> yep. This <laughs> this sounds eerily familiar to uh, Ian Malcolm's <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Horses Kill Man, Women Inherit the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> and so this site is, it's it's just a very cool site. Lots of detail put into it, and lots of new things to discover. We're constantly learning lots of new things. We've done the cool isotope analysis on the teeth of many of our herbivores to figure mm-hmm. out what they were eating because the teeth are that well preserved. Yep. You know, which shows that they're basically all browsers. They were eating the low-lying leaves of shrubs and trees around the watering hole in the forest and so forth. Yeah. Which is cool. And, it, and the rhino as well. You know, Rhinos, there are browsing and grazing rhinos today. This was one that would have been grabbing leaves, not mowing the lawn. Yes. <laughs> With so many fossils, it also happens that, and, and so many fossils, thousands and thousands and thousands of fossils. Oh, it's, it's so many of them. Ridiculous how many the collections now has. Oh, yeah. But with so many fossils, you also get a lot of interesting and more unique situations Mm -hmm. so not only do we you know we mentioned before with the rhino that we have older rhinos and young rhinos but one of our rhinos is a fetus yes we have a fetal rhino remain Mm -hmm. which is something very special our tapirs we have tapirs of all age ages because literally so many of them we have them from little baby tapirs all the way up to big adult tapirs. Yeah, we we have some tapirs where the the teeth are worn down. They're full of cavities. They've got pathologies. Yeah, like senior citizen taper. It's really interesting, and that allows you to do research, right? So this site is is we're able to do conduct research here that you can't really do in a lot of sites, mm-hmm. like studying the full life history of an extinct animal, like the tapir. Um, the red panda, you know, we've mentioned this a few times. I mentioned that the the red panda in Washington, I think, that it's an extinct panda in Washington. Yeah. That's known from, I believe it's a tooth. Yes. The red panda at the gray site is like 98% complete or something. And we have two, at least two fantastic skeletons of it. And that's something to mention about our site in general is not only do we have a great preservation of the environment, and the variety of organisms that were living there, but the preservation of our skeletons is almost unheard of. It's yeah, we have numerous complete skeletons. 
Yeah, one of the rhinos famously, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't remember if it was the first rhino, but it's the one on display. Mm-hmm. It was the only bone missing was one of its end toe bones. It's a single bone from a single toe, which yep. I assume the only logical conclusion that can be drawn from that is that it tripped on its way in. <laughs> and left that bone behind it, and just oh, and then fell. down into the water. That's, I don't see how we could draw any other conclusion from that. That's that sounds scientific to me. Yeah, we have mo- lots of tape. The first summer I worked there, one of the big things they were working on was the front half of a taper skeleton. Like it's oh yeah. When it comes to the tapers, we have multiple, Tons mostly or fully complete specimens. We also have, you know, we talked about that we have the the preservation of a food web. Mm-hmm. And usually, when you have a food web, what you're looking at is saying, "All right, these were the carnivores, right? We had a saber. We have very little remains of a saber-toothed cat. Yeah, enough to know it was there. Yep. We've got the alligator, mm-hmm. which was about the size of the Chinese alligator. If yeah, I remember it, it right. was not, uh, not huge. It was a little bit bigger than the Chinese, a little bit smaller than ours. So it's a medium, you know, not yeah. nothing, nothing ridiculous. Um, you've got snakes on the small mm-hmm. scale of carnivores. I believe there are hints of at least other cats, mm-hmm. maybe I think also they, canids. They, they found a canid. Uh, I yeah. can't remember how much, though. Very little. Mm. And so you're kind of saying, all right, well, this could have eaten this. Mm-hmm. Tapirs are short and plump and juicy, and they were probably being eaten by the, the cats and yes. possibly being eaten by the gators. But we have, at this site, we had at least a couple of turtle shells with gator bite marks on them. Yeah. Which is super fun to find, is to find actual evidence of predation. Mm -hmm. And then one of the tapirs was famously found preserved largely intact with seeds in its belly. Yes. It had big old... They were hickory, if I remember right. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Big old seeds in its belly. That's so cool. Yeah. and, And that's kind of a law of numbers thing that mm-hmm. when you have so many fossils you're going to get some really unusual and interesting cases. Yeah, and it's it uh I I like I said I really look forward to seeing how the site changes and develops or or what it becomes years down the line because it's I truly believe it's going to rival La Brea Tar Pit and many of those other uh, noteworthy yeah. Bold sites. statements. I, I like I'm Gauntlet not putting money on the table, but it like it's going to be <laughs> one of those. It's going to be the East Coast's version of that with how much there is to find. There's there's so so much. It's going to be awesome. Should we talk about the museum? Yeah, and the actual facility, and mm-hmm. you know, because obviously we have the site. Um, it's right off the road. It's behind the building. We're digging there. We're saving all the, we're bringing all the bones. We're saving all the sediment. We're screening the sediment. We're bringing it in. But like we said, you know, I, I did a site, and I think I mentioned this in episode one, but I did a site. I used to work on a site in South Dakota mm-hmm. when I was at Penn State. And, we, you know, we did all the field work out there, and then we carted everything three days back across the country yeah. to get to the lab. But at the gray site, you pick it up and you go into the lab because it's right there. Yeah. And then when the lab is done with it, it goes into the collections room where it's cataloged. In fact, it's extremely common when you're in the museum, when you're when you're working in a lab or something, for somebody to walk in from the site and say, hey, Sean, can you identify this? Yep. 
we just found it. Yep. <laughs> uh, we marked where it came from. Because that was another thing that they do at the site is that we're marking the position of every oh, yes. fossil that's found. That's actually a really good thing to mention that the site was doing that's... Uh, I don't know how unique it is now, but it definitely was not a, uh, as common a place. You know, grid work with a fossil site is pretty... And archaeology is pretty common where you yeah. grid out your site and you note... It was found in grid A B or you know, A eight or yeah. B six or you know sink your battleship, and <laughs> we did that. But we also took it the step further of whenever we found a fossil that you know was in the ground, not the little things that came out with screening, but anytime we found a fossil while digging, we would make a note of it, and they'd bring out survey equipment, same things they use during landscaping to make buildings and you know, layout roads and all that stuff using GPS and a, uh, a camera equipment that would shoot a laser to a little prism we would hold above the fossil. We would actually, on the computer, make a 3D map of where every fossil was found. So yeah. as we go deeper, we will have all the previous fossils above it. And Sean used that information and other information from where the earliest fossils were found to do things like aim for where he uh, where the mastodons should have you know yes. the rest of the mastodons should have bent and stuff like that so by doing this we now can better predict or better tell where we toward the edge where we over here what might have been around us you know yeah. keep track of where all the boulders that we eventually blow up and remove were so that we can find oh they were all in this one area so there was something happening here over regular times where it was dropping rocks or what have you. Yep. And it's a really, it's, it's tedious. Like when you're digging and you have to stop and sit and hold, you have a moment where you're like, can I just, but the end result is awesome. Oh yeah. And, and that's another nice thing about having the facility right there is that's being worked on as you're digging. Mm-hmm. You dig something up and then it goes right into the computer and then you can walk from the computer to the site because, again, we mentioned the site is big, right? We're not yes. digging the whole site. If, no, if we're, we do little sections. Yeah. When you stand on the balcony and look out over the site, you see these pits that we've opened up. You know, here, let's open one up down the slope and up at the peak of the slope and one over here. The rhino pit, the tapir pit, the elephant pit is what they're all yep. named after some of the big things that were found in them. And they have different things. And, and it's a, something that, again, not a lot of fossil sites can do because... The, you know, not a lot of not, a lot of fossil sites don't have this level of detail. Mm -hmm. Where at this site, you know, even the, the La Brea tar pits, those are traps. Yes, right. That's a place where animals were falling in and getting stuck. This is an environment where animals were living, which means we could, in theory, eventually identify. All right, this was the shallow end of the pond because mm -hmm. this is where we find all the baby animals. Yep. Right. This is the part where the cliff face was, because this is where the rocks falls were coming in. And we can map this site over time, which is something really incredible that you you do not get to do yeah. at a lot of sites. We actually we can actually move through the environment, you know, yes. not just getting a snapshot of the local area, but actually specifically where are we in this particular ecosystem, yes. which is really cool. Um, but like we mentioned in episode 13, the lab is right inside. Mm -hmm. So you pick up a fossil, you bring it right in. And then next to the lab is the collections room. So when yeah, you, if, the, you, if you visit the museum, and when we would give tours through the museum, 
it's so cool because you again you don't get to do this at a lot of sites. Mm-hmm. The museum tour is you walk out to the backyard. Mm-hmm. We point at where the digging goes on. We point at the people digging. We walk up and say, "Hey, what have you found today?" And they hold up a tapir because always tapir. And they here yep. here's, here's a tapir toe bone. And the guests go, "Ooh, cool!" And the diggers go, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was rhino at first. Yeah. <laughs> and then from the site, we walk back inside and go, "Hey, here's the lab." Mm-hmm. look in this window. This is where the fossils are worked on. And then we yeah, walk we... down the hall and say, there's the collections room. All those drawers are full of fossils with numbers put to them and labels and little ID cards next to them. And it's funny because we could actually, you could often point out specifically that thing on that table that was found last month. They're putting it together and it's this, you know, it's, yeah. you know, you can actually keep up with the things as they're being processed through and dug up. Which is, Different from a lot of museum experience, because the classic museum experience is you guys like, oh, this is a big skeleton that was found in 1981 mm-hmm. or whatever, and it's been in the museum for whatever, however long. But in this, at the Gray Museum, you can look through the window and see that's the thing that's being worked on right now. Mm-hmm. And it was you. Know, it sometimes you can, you know, be like, no, it was found last summer. You know, yep. we dug it up over there. You can yep. point to it where it was on the site <laughs> while you're out there, point to it in the lab, and then show them the collections where it will eventually go. And it's really fun to be it's it's you get a much better sense of the living paleontology of the actual process. Yes. And that's really like the best exhibit at the Gray site is the site itself. Yes. Absolutely. That you get to walk out and see the people actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. And it's and that's the fun thing because it's a it's a smaller museum. We're not it's not you know so don't picture in your mind right now the you know, a, a na- typical natural history museum where it's going to have these rooms upon rooms of oh, different yeah. animals. We've got we got our main uh, gallery which has a lot of replicas of our skeletons, and mm-hmm. then the lab and the collections. But getting to go outside and actually see the site is the real highlight. Yes. So yeah. Well, to wrap up our episode, I was thinking we could give a little bit about our personal experiences there or personal memories there or anything like that, just of what we did absolutely, and our time there. I'll let you start because you were there first. That's true. I was there first. Honestly, you know, I was thinking about it when you mentioned it, you know, what was sort of my experience at the site? Mm. And this is going to be a cheating kind of answer, but Mm -hmm. my biggest experience at the site is being raised academically around the site. Yes. So the thing we didn't mention is that this site was discovered back in 2000. Um, gradually, they accumulated geologists. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Wallace uh, was there, a paleontologist. He invited Dr. Schubert. And the museum was built around the site. But the other thing that was constructed around this site was the East Tennessee State University Geology Department. Mm-hmm. That this was the impetus for them to bring in geologists and paleontologists and now they had the makings of a department. Mm-hmm. So I started there in 2010, and I'm, you know, only, you know, I, I'm definitely not the first generation of students to come out of there, but it didn't start that far yeah. before that. It was you know, only a few years, a few years, several years before that, that they really started taking paleo students. Yeah. So to be there at the site, you know, it, it wasn't just, that we're digging here. There's lots of research going on here. All the professors are working on this site. Yeah. 
most students got to do at least some kind of research on this site. Mm-hmm. We used to take right the field trips at the uh, the the I, I taught the intro geology labs, and mm-hmm. we would take a field trip to the site. And as a graduate student, we were trained on site material. A lot of my yeah, we I had a class. We took the paleoherpetology class, mm-hmm. and we had to do a research project for the class. And one of the research projects that I did was the snake study mm-hmm. that eventually got published. And so what was always really neat about being around this site was that all your fellow grad students, right, everybody could talk about the site. Yep. Right? Rachel was studying the rhinos from the site. And Laura was looking, I think, at procyonids on the site, mm-hmm. uh, with raccoons and their relatives. Steve did turtles, right? Steve's been studying turtles at the site. Uh, my friends Eric and Leah did some of the geology, did a geology project on the site. Like, mm-hmm. if you were a graduate student at this school, you got to do stuff at this fossil site. Yeah. It was really cool because you, you'd go from campus to the museum, which is only, they're only about 20 minutes apart. Yep. Uh, and you'd see the same people that you'd have class or be in lab with or be yeah. in an office with because they were either there doing research or like or working there because the, we had work study programs that would you know you would get to work at the museum helping them yep. keep it up and running and indeed i you know i was a grad student there for a while and then after i graduated i stuck around for a year mm-hmm. working at the site i you know i was a administrative i was the operations assistant i think was my official right position the uh, ass- ass- assistant to the operations i was yes i was um <laughs> i was gonna make a joke i was it made me think of the office i'm the assistant manager assistant to the manager uh, <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> I, I i was the rung below april yes which is to say i did the things that april told me to do yep uh cheerfully and with a smile <laughs> every day it was every really day <laughs> It was a cool place. So uh, I got there. I got to the school. If I'm, if I'm having all my math right, one year after you did. That sounds about right. I think I started my first year when you started your second, if I'm remembering right. And I didn't. My research was not on the site. I worked at the site doing research because all my I was studying modern alligators, but they were all housed in the collections. So I got very intimate by hanging out there. But I actually worked, you know, as my work study for the for my for my one of my scholarships the whole time at the museum so Mm -hmm. like i was at school for three years and two and a half of those i was working at the museum and uh as the tour guide and summer camp counselor and stuff like that yeah and so it was really fun getting because that way if i wasn't spending time at campus i was spending time at the museum basically and it was cool it was cool getting to really know the museum i got to work uh, some of the de- the front desk job stuff all the way to the doing the summer camp and it was really cool getting because it was so immersive with the the campus life is you would yeah. see all the people you knew you get to talk with them very one-on-one on so what's happening with this you know i heard this was discovered you know yesterday yeah. <laughs> but what what do we know about it and that was that was probably the the coolest thing about it is it was such a tight knit group yeah it wasn't one of those things where while working at the museum, there'd be someone who worked in another apartment you never met. You all saw each other when you went into the break room for lunch. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like the entire staff, you knew everyone. And so it was really cool because it meant 
you all got to know all the details. Like, yeah, everyone really got to know that site inside and out and how it worked. I enjoyed it because it got me, like, I had done tutoring stuff before, but it that was what really gave me my intro to being an educator. Yeah, and that's, we haven't even mentioned the educational mm-hmm. aspect very much, that we gave tours and we had the exhibits and we did special events. Mm-hmm. And uh, me and David kind of, when we were both there, we would often be the, whenever we could get them to schedule us that way, we would be the educators for whatever event. Yep. And it was something we would do outreach. We went out to lots of different places around and talked about the fossils. And so the probably, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think probably the most fun was the one time we did haunted tours. Yeah, that always, <laughs> it's so, it, it was just such a good <laughs> event it was super fun we did a lot of fun stuff right Mm because this is a it's an academic place which means it's full of dorks yep (laughs) and so when we had the opportunity to do fun stuff like that yeah we did when halloween came around and we did the haunted tours that was super fun it was real it was a it was a fun place to be it was very cool and yeah i look forward to seeing how it how it everything updates as time goes on i think that now, first, I, I, I want to, because I, I keep thinking to say this and then forgetting to say it. Yeah. Most of the work we are mentioning is done by volunteers. Yes, this is very true. And that goes for a lot of these kind of facilities, because the, yep. uh, the same is true at the aquarium, is we have more volunteers than we have staff. Yep. So the dig crew in the summer, you know, it's a lot of high school students, a lot of college volunteers. Um, we get a lot citizens. of senior citizens who come in whenever they can, you know. Dozens and dozens of volunteers during the summer in the dig, you know, doing the digging. Uh, last episode, when we did our interviews from the lab, mm-hmm. you know, we interviewed Shaley and Davis, and Shaley started as, I think she said she started, it was for credit, for a school mm-hmm. credit yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, because uh, Tennessee has a, a big, big volunteer program. They're the yep. volunteer state. Uh, and then Davis is a high school student as well. And so it, our volunteers go literally from. I think age 16 mm-hmm. to a lot older than 16. Yeah. I'm not going to guess at anybody. No. But, like, yeah, we have people who've been there for well over a decade just coming in and volunteering their time. Uh, and it's cool because people know about the site because you'll get a lot of visitors who come in and go, oh, I remember when this was discovered because I yeah. live in this area and it was in the news and all that kind of stuff. But to make sort of a poignant note, the work that you and I did on the gray fossil site and not the, not the research work, not the digging mm-hmm. work, but the, the outreach and the education yes. that our time there is sort of the spiritual predecessor to this podcast. Absolutely. This, that that's where we kind of found our place as science educators. And mm-hmm. I was also teaching on, on campus, which was my first step was mm-hmm. I was teaching students and then just sharing this site with people and perfecting the tour mm-hmm. you know this this is probably the most cheating episode we have done since episode one. Oh, absolutely in that we don't we did not really need to prepare for this episode it's just the tour i sat down it took me about 10 minutes i sat down and wrote down <laughs> everything i remembered saying from the tours we gave yep <laughs> exactly yeah. we just became so intimately familiar with this site mm-hmm. And yeah, it was it was so cool to go back last month. I, I to really see need everybody to, and to see there. everything. 
Um, I would. I, there was a part of me that was secretly hoping I'd be asked to give a tour. Yes, <laughs> it didn't happen. There's a part of me that's like, oh, it'd be. It'd be cool to give a like, tour. David, our volunteer called out. We need a tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. In my head, it, it it was like April came out of the back and was like, now listen, guests. We have a treat. <laughs> the best tour guide we've ever had. Is it me? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that was how the fantasy went in my head. It didn't actually happen. But it would have been fun. It's it was a really fun place to be, and it really was it, it really was where the importance of science education became one of our passions. And it's so easy, right? That it's it's super easy to do science outreach and education when you are lucky enough to have the site there. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why you know the La Brea tar pits are so famous. They're in Los Angeles. Yeah. Museums built around the site, and it's in the middle of a city, and so yeah, it's field trip central. And mm-hmm. We would do we get a lot of field trips, right? Students from local elementary schools and middle schools and high schools would come by, and they would do special events, and they'd get to go out onto the site, and we'd show them things. It was a popular field trip destination. It was a it, yeah, it was really cool. And in one of my favorite things about when you were mentioning the volunteers is a lot of our volunteers had been there since the site was discovered so oh yeah pre-building yes (laughs) like a lot of the staff too you know sean and them uh were also there when the digging had started before the foundation was put up but it was always really cool to be talking to someone they're like oh no i remember you know when they started building everything and i remember when this was found i remember when that was found it was it was cool to get little history lessons not about the animals as you know from a biology standpoint, but as the site as it developed into a locality to be visited. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about working on a site that's so new. Because mm-hmm. this, again, 17 years ago, that's nothing. Yeah. You know, La Brea has been around forever. A lot of other sites have been around for a long time. Yeah, It's cool to be working on a site where there are lots of people on hand who've been there the whole time. Yeah, you know the person that the officials called to come look at the stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> It's 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 fun to get to see a site be born. Yes, yes. From the beginning, right? You get to to witness, and we, you know, obviously we missed out the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're but, we're coming in. We're like the the fun uncles. We are coming in when they're able to walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we came in just a few years after the museum opened, mm-hmm. and the museum, by all means, was still finding its feet. It's still today. It's still developing. It's still yeah. growing. It's still kind of finding its place. And it's it's really cool to get to watch that. It's yeah. So we have lots of good memories there, and absolutely, if you ever find yourself in that area of Tennessee, give it a visit because it's a it's a fun one. <laughs> what we're what we've been trying to say for the last hour and a half is go check out yes. the Great Fossil Site in Tennessee, located at one two one two Suncrest Drive, <laughs> Great Tennessee, just off of Exit uh, Shoot thirteen thirteen on I twenty six. I think that's sure. where it is. I know it's I-26. I'm pretty sure it was I think it's exit 13, 13 and I-26. <laughs> take a left. Yeah, it's you, right there on the side of the road. You'll come up. You'll take a left. You'll go down. Uh, go past the gas station. and then Past the gas station. You'll see. You can't miss it. If you hit the school, you've gone too far. Turn around. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's. It's not the second parking lot right before the school, but the first parking lot. Yeah, ex- there you go. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. All right. So batteries not included, some assembly required. Everyone's got your put it in your calendars. Go visit. <laughs> yes. Now we can accept our paycheck from the Gray Fossil site <laughs> for advertising. <laughs> TM. Uh, uh, we haven't gotten paid for the Gray Fossil site in years. I know, right? 
this advertisement is from the good of our hearts. Yeah, it's it's a fun place. Uh, say hi to Sean when you're there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell Sean we sent you. And I don't know if he'll be able to do anything special for yeah. you, but yeah. <laughs> he'll wave at you from behind the glass. Yes. All right. Well, that about wraps up our episode, everyone. I mean, you know, we could go on and on about this site because there's tons of cool little things about a lot of the fossils in the site itself. But otherwise, we will wrap things up here. As always, we will have a blog post. We yep. will pull together pictures mm-hmm. uh, of the site so that you can see some images of the sort of things we're talking about. Uh, even more so than what you got last, you yeah. know, episode, between episode 13 and this one, there'll be a whole lot of images up on the blog that you can see what the gray site looks like. Ask us questions if you have them. We have our email, we have our Twitter, we have our Facebook. Let us know what kind of episode you might want to hear for SVP again. Remember that. Yes. It is always the case that we would love to answer your questions. Mm -hmm. We love taking topic requests. In fact, the next episode should be another requested episode topic. We're on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Email us at commonassentpodcast at gmail.com. Our Patreon is growing swimmingly. Thank Big thanks to those of you who are patrons. Very much so. We love hearing from you. We love hearing reviews. We love getting your questions. We love getting your feedback. Uh, yeah, like Will said, if you have ideas for what you want to learn about, see mm-hmm. us do, hear us do regarding the biggest vertebrate paleontology meeting of the year, let us know. We'd love to hear about that as well. We're, we, we do it for you. You're the reason we keep recording these episodes, people. That's true. You're <laughs> the reason we hit that red button. As is always the case... One fortnight from the release of this episode, you can expect the release of the next episode. Indeed. We hope you will join us then. Thank you for joining us now. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. (laughs) 